Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Today, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis asked a judge to set the trial date for former President Trump and his 14 remaining co-defendants in the Georgia election interference case. That date, August 5th, 2024. Now, that date would be stunning on its own. It's just three months before Election Day. But D.A. Willis asking for an August 5th trial date today is even more of a big deal when you consider that she just said this on Tuesday. I believe in that case there will be a trial. I believe the trial will take many months. And I don't expect that we will conclude until the winter or the very early part of 2025. Now, Trump's legal team promptly filed its own motion opposing that August 5th trial date. And we have no idea how the judge will rule here. But there is a very real chance that former President Trump could be on trial during the closing weeks of the 2024 election on Election Day itself, through January 6th and the election certification process, and maybe even through inauguration. And we remember how that all went down last time, don't we, in 2020? Well, this would add a new level of complexity to all of that. This is not the only key date we learned about today. D.A. Willis also requested that the judge set a final plea date on June 21st. Trump, if you recall, has 14 co-defendants remaining. Four of his original co-defendants have already pleaded guilty. And now D.A. Willis is asking to give all the remaining defendants a hard deadline for making a deal with prosecutors. The state will entertain negotiated guilty plea deals up until the final plea date. After the final plea date, the defendants will only have the option of non-negotiated pleas, and the state intends to recommend maximum sentences at any remaining sentencing hearings. So if any of Trump's co-defendants feel like cutting a deal and avoiding jail time, the clock is ticking. They have until June 21st. Now, the reason... These dates matter is because they could very well determine if Donald Trump will be held accountable at all. Trump has been trying to push all four of his criminal trials until after 2024, at which point he might be president again and could make them, for the most part, disappear. And there are already two cases where it looks like Trump's delay tactics might very well succeed. The first is the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case down in Florida. This week, the Trump appointed judge in that case Aileen Cannon, made a ruling that has experts speculating that trial might not happen until after the 2024 election. And because of potential scheduling conflicts with other cases, the timing for Trump's New York hush money trial, that also looks like it is in flux. So those two cases might not be resolved before the end of 2024, which means that they might never be resolved. But... Two of the big cases against Trump, ones with arguably the most serious charges, they do look like they will happen next year. 
One is D.A. Willis's election interference case in Georgia. And the other is Jack Smith's federal election interference case in Washington, D.C. The judge in Jack Smith's D.C. case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, said last month that this trial will not yield to the election cycle. We will not revisit the trial date. And that suggests, well, it suggests a very complicated year ahead for candidate defendant Donald J. Trump. It looks likely that Trump's first big trial, the Jack Smith D.C. trial, will commence on March 4th, one day before Super Tuesday, when voters in 16 states go to the polls. And Trump's second big trial, the Georgia election interference trial, that may start on August 5th, and it could last months meaning Donald Trump may be on trial just before, during, and after Election Day, meaning 2024 will be a presidential election year like no other. Once those trials start, there is likely to be new information presented that Donald Trump does not want to come out. Last month, Trump's legal team filed a motion in the D.C. election interference case, and that motion asked the judge to bar special counsel Jack Smith's team from talking about the January 6th insurrection during the trial. Trump's team claimed that connecting Donald Trump and the violence from that day would prejudice jurors against Trump. Well, today, Judge Chutkin denied that motion, which makes sense. It was a long shot request. It was a Hail Mary. Trump's legal team asked for it anyway. And that is how much they do not want more information about Trump's connection to the January 6th riot to become public. But it looks like that is exactly what may happen. Now, just tonight, hours ago, a judge in Colorado rejected an effort to keep Donald Trump off the state's 2024 ballot. That case was based on part of the 14th Amendment that bars individuals from running for public office if they've engaged in insurrection. And Even though that judge decided to keep Trump's name on the Colorado ballot, she wrote in her order that the court finds that Trump engaged in insurrection on January 6, 2021, through incitement. Man, that is just a heck of a thing to have a court decide formally. And it certainly does not bode well for Donald Trump, as all of these January 6 cases go to trial in the weeks and months and days leading up to the general election. So buckle up. Joining me now is David Aaron, former federal prosecutor with Justice Department's National Security Division, and Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst, the legal wind beneath our wings. Thank you both for being here. Every day it's a new metaphor. Lisa, okay, first of all, the let's just start with uh, the, the August 5th trial date that Fonnie Willis is requesting. Does Donald Trump have a case to be made that this, I mean, she says, look, I'm not considering elections, whatever. But as far as the judge, Judge McAfee in this case is concerned, does Trump have a case to make that this will make campaigning almost impossible? He does. And, you know, as much as I believe that Donald Trump should face accountability in Fulton County and all of the other places in which he has been charged with criminal violations, there is something that is like, there's something icky about preventing a potential major party candidate from campaigning on the basis that he's being subjected to trial. Is there anything legally that stands in the way other than 
Trump's First Amendment right to political speech. I can't think of anything. He doesn't have a constitutional right not to be tried simply because he's a political candidate. He will argue, on the other hand, that it is somehow an interference with his political speech rights. And that will be a difficult thing for Judge Scott McAfee to balance. As you know, Alex, and we've talked about before, Scott McAfee has a background that's more similar to Aileen Cannon's than it is to Tanya Chutkin's. Yet, thus far, he's shown himself to be fair here. And so it remains to be seen what he'll do and how he'll balance those objectives. Yeah, all of this is terra incognito for our judicial system. But this particularly seems like it's a decision that's going to just sort of be the judge's the judge's opinion on how this should be interpreted. I think that's right. It's the judge's opinion on how this should be interpreted. And it's possible that his decision can be appealed But usually judges have a lot of latitude in terms of how they conduct their courtroom when they schedule trials. And so Scott McAfee is not just a decision maker here. He might be the decision maker here. Yeah. Um, Dave, when we talk about, you know, the public interest in accountability, as you look at this calendar and you look at, you know, the various delay tactics being employed by Trump's defense team, but also just the the sort of nature of pretrial motions and just procedural delays. If you had to bet on one trial in the 2024 calendar being completed by Election Day, would it be Judge Chutkin's case or trial in Washington, D.C.? Absolutely. Um, Judge Chutkin is keeping tight control of the schedule, of the calendar. Um, it has been willing to impose orders, uh, you know, limiting what the defendant can say publicly. Um, she's she's really keeping this case uh, on track, on pace. And I, I think that would be you're absolutely right. That would be my bet. What is the appeals process like for something like this? I mean, given uh, who knows what will happen. But if Donald Trump is convicted on some of these charges, one assumes there's going to be some extensive appeals process. Can you paint a picture of what you imagine that would be and how long it might take? Well, how long it might take is going to be a big question. Um, but whether it happens at all, you know, depends on the outcome of the trial. Of course, a defendant generally uh, can only appeal after being convicted. So if it's going to be an appeal by the defendant, um, you know, the defendant would be convicted. Uh, judgment would be entered. Um, and then that's when the defendant can uh, file that appeal, that notice of appeal. At that point, though, uh, you know, appeals, as you say, can take a long time. And in the ordinary course of things, it's quite a long time between sentencing, um, which can happen sometime after conviction and and the appeal actually making its way uh, to the to the first level of appellate review. Now, under some circumstances, the, the Court of Appeals could expedite that. And certainly uh, under the circumstances that we're talking about, you can see why uh, the Court of Appeals and if necessary, the Supreme Court would be willing to expedite that. But they do have to give both times a fair amount of t- both sides a fair amount of time to get their briefs in. Uh, I think that um, in the Chutkin case, the trial's expected to last two to three months. And I'm harping on the timeline here because I can't get past the surreality of this beginning at Super Tuesday and, and having a trial, another trial that lasts through Election Day. In the middle of this, we have the Republican National Convention, yep. right? The, the Smith trial could last March, April, May. Maybe there's the appellate process. Who knows what happens after that? July is the Republican convention. August is when Fonnie Willis would like her trial to start. I mean, you're talking about, Lisa, the entire year, effectively, from March until after the election being filled with courtroom drama for Donald Trump. Absolutely. And 
The one other thing that I would point out, Alex, is that Fannie Willis, in her request to have this trial on August 5th, has also told Judge McAfee that she wants anyone who's going to negotiate a plea to do so by June 21st. And so that would fall smack dab in what we understand to be sort of the interim period between the two trials, right? So The let's interregnum. Just, correct. So if Judge Chutkin is done with her trial by June, and we're not expecting Fannie Willis to begin until August if she gets her way, that mid-period right before the conventions is going to be another big decision point about who's going to plead out. Because if Fannie Willis gets her way, June 21st is that drop-dead time for anybody who wants to negotiate a deal. That's the end of flipping season, I think. You can wear white pants after that. Um, Dave, when we talk about what Judge Chutkin ruled, her ruling today, that uh, the January, the the mention, the evidence relating to January 6th is going to be part of this trial. I mean, talk about the significance of that, especially, you know, as we are talking about a man who's going to be running for president. These are two January 6th cases with a lot of overlap. And there is going to be a lot of talk about insurrection in a presidential election year. What What is the meaningful, how meaningful is it that um, Judge Chutkin is allowing January 6th to be central to Jack Smith's case? Well, actually, what, what Judge Chutkin ruled uh, today or ruled in, in this in this order um, isn't about the evidence at trial. It's about what's in the indictment itself. And the indictment is not evidence. The indictment is essentially the the paperwork by by which the government charges the defendant. So there's a lot of information or a lot of allegations in the indictment about January 6th and and the connection of the defendant to those events. And the defendant wanted to have some of what they call surplusage, the extra stuff uh, taken out of the indictment. Um, And really what the judge's ruling boils down to is We can talk about whether it's relevant and we can talk about whether it's inflammatory, but because it's in the indictment and it's not evidence uh, going into trial, at this point, it's just it's just not prejudicial. It causes no possible harm to the defendant to have it in the charging instrument because the jury doesn't see that charging instrument. The jury only sees the evidence the judge allows in and the, the jury only hears the law that the judge gives them. Can you can you expand on that a little bit, though? What are the implications for evidence that would be used in trial if it's going to be part of the indictment? Does that not mean that you're going to have more January 6 evidence in the actual trial? Would that be a, an indicator of that? It, it really could go either way. If the government can show why information or evidence about January 6th is relevant to one or more charge, one, one or more of the charges, then the, the judge would go ahead and weigh, well, is the, is the relevance and the, the probative value of that information outweighed by any potential prejudice that, that it could cause uh, the defendant? Um, but really, to get it into evidence, the, the government's going to have to show that uh, that that information supports one of the charges. Here, um, the the ruling's a little bit different. There, the judge didn't rule that that evidence or that information is directly relevant to any of the charges in the indictment. The judge, you know, didn't address that. Explicitly said that she wasn't addressing that. The judge just said here, um, there's no harm in including it in the indictment, even if it is not relevant, even if it is inflammatory, mm-hmm. because the jury's not seeing it. So that's a decision really that's going to wait for another day. Um, I would assume that's going to be litigated further, Lisa, but it seems to me that um, there's already an understanding that including January 6th in this federal trial is problematic for Trump. It is not a coincidence to me that today the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, said, hey, um, the 90 hours of, uh, is it security cameras, surveillance footage that we have, we're going to release that to the public and all news organizations so everybody can... um, 
comb through it and we won't have to rely on the interpretation of a small group of people to tell us what happened. Well, but it is an interpretation of a small group of people, and I'll tell you why. There are 40,000 hours of security footage that were in the possession of the January 6th committee. This is Mike Johnson making a unilateral decision. I'm going to release 90 hours of that footage. How that footage was selected, what it shows, what danger it exposes current members of Congress and their staffs to, that's something that Mike Johnson is going to have to answer for. Mm. But it's not as if that's the entire body of security footage that we're looking at and certainly being put into the public domain because they know that January 6th is absolutely going to be part of the narrative that Jack Smith wants to bring out at his trial because, in his view, it's critical to how Donald Trump conspired to obstruct the counting of the votes on January 6th and indeed accomplish that objective. That's the one substantive count that he's been charged for. All the other counts are conspiracy counts, but there is a substantive obstruction of an official proceeding count against Donald Trump because that's where he succeeded. It is also a visceral reminder for the jury of the gravity of what Donald Trump allegedly did, right? I mean, just the emotional um, force of that footage of the, you know, recounting that day, I would assume would have an impact on a jury of um, the president's peers. Lisa Rubin, David Aaron, thank you both for your time tonight. Deeply appreciated on this Friday. We have a lot more ahead tonight, including the 2024 Republican presidential primary race. If you thought the result was a foregone conclusion, we are going to show you the candidate who really might give Donald Trump a run for his money. And here's a hint. This candidate wears heels, but they are on the outside of this candidate's shoes. First, though, companies are racing tonight to pull their ads from the company formerly known as Twitter. I'm going to tell you why coming up next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Information implanted once upon a punched card. Punched card accounting is simply a matter of letting machines shuffle the papers. When machines do the adding and subtracting and multiplying and comparing and printing, business facts are handled with increased speed and improved accuracy. Before there were modern-day computers, businesses and governments all over the world used punched card systems to track the flow of data. IBM was a pioneer in the original punch card computing system. In the 1930s and 1940s, one of IBM's main international subsidiaries was in Hitler's Germany. And IBM continued to do business in Germany during the lead-up to World War II, 
despite growing international boycotts. In 1937, IBM CEO Thomas Watson became the first American businessman to be awarded the Medal of the German Eagle by Adolf Hitler himself for bettering economic relations with the Third Reich. In his book, IBM and the Holocaust, historian Edwin Black argues that Nazi Germany relied on IBM's punch card technology to carry out their systematic genocide of Europe's Jewish population. He writes, card sorting operations were established in every major concentration camp. People were moved from place to place, systematically worked to death, and their remains cataloged with icy automation. IBM has acknowledged that the Nazis used equipment from IBM's German subsidiary during the war. They have said that the company finds the atrocities committed by the Nazi regime abhorrent and categorically condemns any action which aided their unspeakable acts. IBM has not confirmed allegations of deeper involvement in the Holocaust, saying that many of its records from that time were destroyed or lost during the war. But it is safe to say that IBM understands the potential danger of what happens when information technology is used for hateful and anti-Semitic purposes. Yesterday, IBM officially suspended all of its advertising on the platform X, formerly known as Twitter, after a report from Media Matters found that its advertisements had appeared next to tweets promoting Hitler and Nazism. An An ex-executive responded by saying the company has done a sweep on the accounts that Media Matters found, and they will no longer be monetizable, and that the specific posts will be labeled sensitive media. To be clear here, they are not taking down the Hitler Nazi tweets. They are going to label them sensitive. That same day, ex-owner Elon Musk publicly agreed with an anti-Semitic tweet on the platform, one accusing Jews of pushing hatred against whites. Musk told the anti-Semitic user, You have said the actual truth. CNBC reports that that tweet prompted other companies to also pause their ads on the platform, companies including Apple and Disney and Comcast, this network's parent company. Despite the backlash, Elon Musk, the richest man in the world and the owner of several of the world's most important technology companies, he is now openly agreeing with some of the most poisonous right-wing anti-Semitism that is out there. There is a dark history of what happens when American business leaders become complicit or active participants in this kind of anti-Semitism. The question now is, how do we as a society respond? I'll talk to Michelle Goldberg and Maya Wiley about just that coming up next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. 
The deadliest anti-Semitic attack on American soil took place in 2018. A white supremacist who believed that Jews were part of some grand conspiracy to replace white people with people of color shot up a synagogue in Pittsburgh. He killed 11 people and wounded six more. This week, the richest man on earth endorsed the very same conspiracy theory. A user on X, formerly Twitter, tweeted, Western Jewish populations are coming to the disturbing realization that those hordes of minorities that they support flooding their country don't exactly like them too much. He added that Jews were pushing hatred against whites. Elon Musk replied, you have said the actual truth. Musk is the man who publicly picked a fight with the Anti-Defamation League and who has allowed provocateurs, that's being euphemistic, back on his platform, including notorious Nazi Andrew Anglin and artist Kanye West, who has said he, quote, loves Nazis. At this point, even the White House has felt the need to respond in a statement. We condemn this abhorrent promotion of anti-Semitic and racial hate in the strongest terms, which runs against our core values as Americans. Joining me now are Michelle Goldberg, New York Times opinion columnist, and Maya Wiley, president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Thank you guys both for joining me. Um, Michelle, let me just start with you. We talk about the great replacement theory as it is like some venomous idea that exists on social media, but it, I, I feel like it's actually become almost mainstreamed in our American political system. Well, it's definitely mainstream in the Republican Party. I mean, it's certainly, you know, Donald Trump. Tucker Carlson, all sorts of leading figures in the MAGA movement, um, you know, repeat its tropes all the time. It's also worth noting that this Twitter user, the one who kind of talked about the hordes of minorities, he was responding to somebody who said something about kind of anonymous Twitter trolls who say Hitler was right, come say it to my face. And he was like, okay, I'll say Happy it to your face. I'll say it to and your face. And then Elon right. Musk That's in. the guy that Elon Musk is saying you are saying the actual truth. And so... You know, yes, I think the great replacement theory and in general, I mean, you there's been a lot of attention lately to, to anti-Semitism on the left, to the places where anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism can interact. There's been, you know, attacks on Jews linked to this war. But there is still a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism among far more powerful figures on the right. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think anti-Semitism is limited to one side of the political spectrum, but in terms of the power and influence it has, I mean, only one side of the political spectrum has a probable presidential nominee who had dinner with one of the most famous white nationalists and anti-Semites in America and still refuses to apologize for it. Well, and and is is out there having his advisors like Stephen Miller float policy prescriptions that are rooted in the great replacement theory. I mean, Stephen Miller, Trump's immigration czar, is speaking to The New York Times and talking about what the immigration policy would be in 2025 in a Trump administration. He plans to scour the country for unauthorized immigrants and deport people by the millions per year. I mean, this is a person who really sees a brown threat coming across the border that must be stopped at all costs. Yeah, and Stephen Miller is someone who some have written about and shown his origins and his essentially his grooming uh, by white supremacists. And remember, he's had family members denounce him uh, because of his racism, because of his uh, the positions that he has taken. That's who Stephen Miller is, but that's also, he is the lieutenant of Donald Trump. He is the person who did not leave or exit the White House when Donald Trump was in it. And, you know, I think one of the things we have to go back to here is, you know, Elon Musk is someone who is not just 
I mean, he is all the things that we're saying, but underneath all of this, including the great replacement theory and the point about Donald Trump's policy of whether it's building a wall or the Muslim ban, where you're just yes. going to assume everyone who's Muslim is a terrorist and all of the hatred he has stoked. You know, Elon Musk's platform is not, it's so toxic that it was reported and he threatened to sue because independent researchers were talking about the massive explosion of hate. And what we have to remember at the base of that, the great replacement theory is exactly the kinds of theories adopted by the shooter who killed black people in a top supermarket in Buffalo, by people who are killing people because they're LGBT. So the thing that we have to remember is what we share as a large group of Americans is that these are not just enemies of a particular people. These anti-Semites are often racist against black people. They're anti-LGBTQ. They are Islamophobes. They're anti-Arab American. And they spew hate and the violence it can produce against all of us. And that has to be our wake-up call. And there, there is, as you outlined, very real consequence. This isn't just Elon Musk being crazy and having, you know, Donald Trump having dinner with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West. This is a through line between the, the sort of rhetoric that you're seeing in social media, the upper echelons of American political life and people being murdered. I mean, the, 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 so I wonder, Michelle, what you think of an appropriate response here, right? Like you have advertisers saying, okay, we're done here. We don't, we don't, these tweets will not be monetized with our money. (laughs) But isn't, didn't Elon Musk's takeover of X begin with this sense that he'd been marginalized and finally was coming to be Russian and be a hero? Well, I would say a couple of things. I mean, Elon Musk, it's not like Elon Musk's anti-Semitism is something that we've just discovered this week, right? Elon Musk has been, I mean, flirting is much too mild a word, he, you know, with his posts about George Soros, his posts, you know, with him and Kanye West kind of are, not, nah, I don't, dancing or something right after, you know, when Kanye West first emerged as a Hitler lover and then welcoming Kanye Kanye West back. He's, you know, all sorts of Pepe the Frog, all right memes. You know, for a long time, he's been sort of sewing how I think he's even said that he's been red pilled and, you know, take the red pill. And so this is who he's been for a long time. And a lot of people have put up with it. They've put up with his campaign against the Anti-Defamation League, you know, which has now bizarrely kind of congratulated him for um, saying that he's going to ban the phrase from the river to the sea and kind of ban the word decolonize and decolonization. That aside, yes. So it's it's bizarre to me that people have been advertising all this time, advertising often with their ads in close proximity to openly racist white nationalist content. And Elon Musk, I think we should also remember, is a major military contractor. He's a major government contractor. It is, you know, I don't know kind of if you can, I'm sure there's free speech considerations with rolling that back, but it is bizarre that this man presumably has some sort of Security clearance definitely has this very intimate, intense relationship with the United States military while he is spouting this ideology that presumably is antithetical to what the United States is supposed to stand for. I just I'm like thinking of Tommy Tuberville and his like his stand against the military's <laughs> reproductive health policy. When really, if we're looking at military, the military, maybe we should wonder whether an anti an avowed anti-Semite is the person the U.S. military should be doing business and with. racist and homophobe <clears throat> and misogynist. I mean, let's just go down the list, because this is the other thing. I mean, this is the guy uh, who was upset because 
you know, the, the writer of Dilbert, after doing a real a long racist rant, talked about anti-whiteness in the U.S. media and the schools. That is simply a shorthand for the great replacement mm, theory. Yes. It's the same thing. And so I think part of what everyone looking at this should say is, yeah, as Michelle says, why now? He's been this and he's been promoting this and he has even been attacking independent researchers just calling out the data after he decimated his trust and safety team. And by the way, why we're at it, YouTube, Meta have both said, yeah. you know, if you do election denial, even though that 12 million Americans have said that they support violence if it will help Trump be back in power, that that is fair game now on social on, on YouTube and in Meta. This is a problem that we have to consider not be, just because of Elon Musk, but beyond Elon Musk. Um, Michelle, Maya, hang with me through the break. We have a lot more to talk about, including <laughs> the issue that threatens threatens to fracture the Democratic Party and Joe Biden's reelection chances. It's all tied up. We are going to discuss that next. And after, later, Nikki Haley has momentum in the Republican presidential race. Is she a problem for Donald Trump? We're going to have more on that ahead. This was the scene a short time ago as hundreds of protesters took to the streets in both Washington, D.C. and New York City, demanding a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. There has been an increasingly loud chorus of protests since October 7th, some calling to support Israel, others calling to support civilians in Gaza. And the public pressure to choose sides is having an impact, particularly in the Democratic Party which is showing signs of fracture. New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg writes today, the wounds it has torn open will be hard to mend because so many people are feeling betrayed. Many liberal Jews mourning the mass murder in Israel and shaken by the upsurge of anti-Semitism at home believe they've been abandoned by their allies. Advocates for the freedom and safety of Palestinians, horror struck by more than 10,000 civilian deaths in Gaza, believe that the Democratic Party is giving its approval to atrocities. Back again with me are Michelle Goldberg and Maya Wiley. Um, Michelle, you look at this fracture through the lens of Jamal Bowman. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that for folks who haven't read the piece? Sure. Well, Jamal Bowman is, of course, a member of the quote unquote, the squad, you know, this kind of alliance of very progressive young Democrats, all people of color. And he won an upset victory against a super pro-Israel representative, Elliot Engel, in 2020, sort of coming out with the energy of the um, George Floyd protests behind him. He's in a district that is about half um, black and Latino, but also has a lot of Jewish voters and Jewish voters make up a really significant part of the Democratic primary electorate. And Bowman has been pretty consistently to the left on, Pal on Israel and Palestine, more so since he took a trip to the region and saw the occupation up close. And there is just this rift in the district between him, who's, you know, he's like extremely sincere. He doesn't pander. And he's taken these positions that are just anathema to some of the people who have supported him in the last two elections. And 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 you write, I think, very compassionately about both sides here, that there's like deep seated 
sort of ethical anguish over all of this. And even Bowman supporters say, I just, I, he can't get to where I need him to be. I can't support him anymore and, and vice versa. Maya, the, the schism here in the party seems to be between Jewish voters and younger voters and especially voters of color. That's a division that the right wing would love to explode. Um, and I wonder if you think this is something that can be dealt with. This a healing can happen before 2024. Well, one thing that struck me uh, about your piece, Michelle, which I thought was so well rendered, is that Jamal Bowman, who who endorsed me when I ran for mayor, for full disclosure, um, and who is someone who I think is a deeply honorable and sincere human being. Um, did what he should have done. He he asked for Jewish uh, community members to come speak with him and had a sit down with him and talked honestly about what he saw and his concern for them. You know, and I think one of the things that has happened because there's so much trauma, there's so much pain, the rise in anti-Semitism is real. Mm -hmm. um, the fear that I know that so many people, including civil rights leaders I work with who are Jewish, are feeling is quite intense, even very, very, very progressive ones on the question of the region. Um, at the same time, we're seeing a rise in hate against Arab Americans, yeah. Muslims as well. And I think one of the things that the that is so important to remember is that we have to talk about the fact that this is a shared problem, mm -hmm. that this is the underpinnings. We are seeing the extremists, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, doing more organizing now, actually increasing their numbers. It is us that have to stay unified. And I will say this, there's a lot of time before this election, right? So put the election aside right now. The real question is, are we going to go back to understanding what people want and need to be safe and get what they need in their own communities? And there is real opportunity for that kind of unity. But we do have to acknowledge and talk about the very real fear and pain that so many are feeling. Yeah, I, I was struck by the way in which Jamal Bowman wants to hear about that pain and fear. And but then even at the end of that, people right. are like, I can't vote for you. And then that gets supercharged by the fact that you have outside groups that are going to seek to oust a lot of these more liberal members of Congress, the squad. And you write, Michelle, about the implications for a Democratic Party that no longer has sort of that face of it in such um, ascension, if you will. In terms right. Of and power. I guess we'll see what that looks like. But yes, there's going to a lot of members of the squad, um, you know, Jamal Bowman, Ilhan Omar, Summer Lee, Cori Bush are going to be facing very well financed and potentially really ugly primaries. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in those primaries. But the idea that you have a Democratic Party that is already um, has a kind of collapse in support from young people, has diminishing support among people of color, the collapse in support of Muslims and Arab Americans, how it's going to affect um, enthusiasm if you see the people that they look to in the Democratic Party um, be sort of um, cast aside. I think it could or be pushed out. Right. Yeah, or pushed actively. out. Yeah. And I think that that could be really devastating. And there's, you know, there's people at the, that's where kind of party leadership, you would think, should maybe step in and try to head off some of these challenges. Well, I spoke with Hakeem Jeffries and he said he was going to spend house money to make sure incumbents were not primaried and that included members of the squad. We will see what happens there. Michelle Goldberg, Maya Wiley, thank you guys so much for your time tonight. Thank you. We have one more story for you this evening.
is Nikki Haley on a path to turn the Republican presidential primary on its head? We're going to have much more on that right after the break. In New Hampshire, a new Monmouth University poll released today shows Nikki Haley leading Ron DeSantis by 11 points. And in South Carolina, Haley believes she has a very real path to victory. It is her home turf, after all. This is obviously bad news for Ron DeSantis, but could it also be bad news for Donald Trump? This is Ben Smith in Semaphore writing, the Republican presidential primary is, against all odds, starting to look like the exact thing Donald Trump sought to avoid, a winnowing field that could plausibly produce just one ticket out of the January 15th Iowa caucus, a real presidential face-off in New Hampshire, and a high-profile moment of opportunity for a challenger. Joining me now is David Friedlander. He's a contributor to New York Magazine covering national politics, and he is the writer of a new piece analyzing Nikki Haley's strategy to take on Donald Trump. David, it's great to see you. Um, you have this quote from a DeSantis official <laughs> who's told you, vis-a-vis Nikki's rise in the poll, Governor Haley's rise in the polls, congrats, Nikki, one person to the DeSantis campaign put it to me, you won the Never Trump primary. Your prize is nothing. <laughs> There's... A concerted belief that it doesn't matter if you are doing really well if you're in the never Trump group, because ultimately this election is going to be about Trump, 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 Trump. Sure. Um, You kind of debunk that a little bit in this piece. Well, the DeSantis theory of the case had always been like, let's people there may be some voters who like Trumpism, but don't like Donald Trump. And so we'll kind of get those voters and then all the never Trump voters will get them, too, because we're the ones that can defeat Donald Trump. It doesn't appear as if that theory still works. In fact, it seems as if DeSantis more looked like just a kind of like lesser version of Donald Trump. People had the real thing. You know, why go with the sort of shorter version in heels, as it were? Right. (laughs) And so Haley has kind of changed the conversation of the race a little bit until until it's a conversation about, like, are you either Donald Trump with Trumpism and all that chaos, everything else? Or are you not Trump? And and lessons appear to have been learned from 2016, right, when everybody stayed in the race really late. The the sort of votes were scattered and no one could no one coalesced behind an alternative that does not look to be happening here at this moment. And you write furthermore, Trump, if you look at him as an incumbent president, is actually not doing that well. Yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, Trump really, like, he is the, he is the com- incumbent, right? I mean, he's the guy, he's running again. You know, he, if, if, if Joe Biden were at 50% or 60% with Trump is, there would be a major freakout on the Democratic side. I mean, there is a low-grade freakout happening There's a anyway. freak out, right. There's maybe a major freakout happening, but there'd be even, like, you couldn't even imagine the freakout happening on the Democratic side. Right. If these were Biden's numbers. But instead, they're Trump's numbers. And, and, and that, I mean, so talk to me about how this, Walk me through the scenario by which Nikki Haley becomes a real formidable challenger to Donald Trump. Oh, I mean, look, it's it's a little starshine and rainbow, right? Sure. I mean, who, who knows? She, she's down by a lot, for sure. But I think, you know, if she were to kind of keep it close in Iowa, keep it close to New Hampshire, as you said, then she gets to South Carolina. I mean, there's a possibility we get a real race. You know, Trump is like below 50 percent in Iowa. He's below 50 percent in New Hampshire. South Carolina is Haley's state. And then maybe, you know, the kind of you know, bloom gets off the rose a little bit for him if, if she can knock him off one of those early states. Well, and then there's also the timing that we talked about at the top of the show, which is Super Tuesday is the day that his federal uh, election interference case begins in Washington, D.C. If primary voters need a reminder about why Donald Trump may not be the best candidate, reminding people of 91 felony counts, January 6th, the insurrection and all the rest could be, I don't know, a Nikki Haley ad. 
Yeah, I mean, none of that's affected Trump so far, right? I mean, I think that's one of the big questions. Like, if he's going to start to lose altitude because of all these criminal charges, when is that kind of going to start? Does it take the trial and all this news coverage hasn't done it yet? I mean, I just don't know. Well, one thing is for sure. Tim Scott has dropped out. Yes. Um, We have a number of sort of like golden people who have basically hung up their spurs. Ron DeSantis is not one of them yet. But Nikki Haley is consolidating the donor base. Is that right? She's starting to, for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. She and with a significant amount of cash, she's taken a $10 million ad buy, I believe. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the looming threat, the X factor of Trump's trials. I mean, I do kind of agree with Ben's thesis that this is exactly what Donald Trump sought to avoid. And there could be some lift in there for an unlikely candidate. We never thought we'd get a race, but it kind of sort of maybe looks like we're getting a race. Do you think that you're going to come back on the show in like nine months? I mean, you'll come on before that, but in nine (laughs) months and we'll look back and say, remember when we were roundly dismissing the primary is nothing to see here, folks. And now look what's happened. Uh, I mean, it's hard. If you squint, you can see it. But, but, you know, we're far away from that. (laughs) David Friedlander, just squint enough and you can see a race. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Thank you for your time, sir. Of course. Have a great weekend. That is our show for this evening. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.